It's Monday, October 26th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. More coronavirus has infiltrated the White House. Mark Short, Chief of Staff for Vice President Mike Pence, and other key staffers around him have tested positive for COVID-19. Despite these new infections, Pence will continue his campaign schedule as he and his wife have tested negative. We will also look at some key races that could help Democrats flip control of the Senate if they win. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for the latest leading up to Election Day. Next, as we prepare for a vaccine to be approved, hospitals and pharmaceutical companies are ramping up their security and storing coronavirus vaccines in undisclosed locations, deploying GPS trackers to monitor shipments, and even setting up fake shipments with dummy trucks to throw off criminals. Jared Hopkins, farmer reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the tight vaccine security. Finally, there has been a huge effort by daycare workers to prevent the spread of COVID-19, and it's paying off. A study of more than 57,000 child care providers found that those who continued working throughout the pandemic weren't more likely to catch coronavirus than those that were out of work. Extra precautions such as cleaning surfaces daily, extra hand washing for kids, and keeping them in smaller and separate groups helped limit the spread. Kate Bagley, contributor to Popular Science, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The vice president, who's been exposed to five people with COVID-19, will ignore CDC guidelines to be here tomorrow, putting the health of everyone who works in this building at risk. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We're going into the last week before the election, and we're getting more stories about coronavirus at the White House, uh, specifically in the circle of Vice President Mike Pence. Mark Short, his chief of staff, and a few others around him have come down positive with coronavirus. That's right. I mean, we're in the final days of the election. And sort of a, a surprise here at the end is that several aides to Vice President Mike Pence have been diagnosed with coronavirus, including his chief of staff, Mark Short. Now, you know, the president's had COVID, a number of his aides got COVID, but it still is a little bit of a surprise that after that outbreak last month, we're seeing what is basically another mini outbreak in the White House. We've been told by the White House that Pence is not going to change his schedule, even though he is considered a close contact with Mark Short, who was positive. Um, he's going to continue to campaign, going to continue to travel. Their reasoning being he's a, an essential worker and he should be allowed to continue to go to work. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, you know, Mike Pence and his wife both tested negative. Uh, but, you know, he was the head of the coronavirus task force, is is the head of the coronavirus task force. And there's a lot of issues being made of, is he following the proper guidelines? You know, he was he in close contact enough? Should he be quarantining? And obviously, as you mentioned, he's not. He's going to keep the campaign schedule going. I mean, they maintain that they, in, you know, implement another other measures that are not available for the average person who might be exposed. He is tested daily. Um, they are distanced from some people. But as we know, people can test negative for a number of days before they test positive and spread the disease. That's what we saw in the last White House outbreak. So I think we're going to hear a lot of criticism from Democrats in these days that Pence isn't following the CDC guidelines um, here at the end of the campaign. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the Senate. Everybody's saying right now Joe Biden is favored to win the presidency. We'll have to wait to see, obviously, if that happens. It seems like Democrats will retain control of the House. But there's a, a few battleground states in, in the Senate where Democrats could come up with the win, maybe flip the majority. Some of the states that have been talked about are Colorado, Arizona, Maine, North Carolina, and Iowa. 
is it possible for the Democrats to to flip the Senate? It's absolutely possible. I mean, we look at the polling that we're seeing right now, and it's telling us that Democrats are going to have a good night on November 3rd. Possible big wins for Joe Biden, as you said, keeping the House. But those Senate races are a lot smaller. And we've seen Republicans in some of those places where competitive races are trying to convince voters that they should split their ballot, that they should vote for a Republican for the Senate, even if they're not voting for Donald Trump. Uh, you pointed to a few that I think are going to be the most closely watched. Maine, where Susan Collins is facing a Democratic challenger who's pulled even. Colorado, where Cory Gardner is facing John Hickenlooper, a popular former governor. That race is very close. North Carolina, where Tom Tillis is facing Kyle Cunningham, who had a bit of a scandal um, yeah. after some text messages, but <laughs> hasn't seemed to suffer in the polls as a result. Tell us a little bit more about that, if you can. He, he was texting another woman, romantic text messages, things like that. But but as you mentioned, he's still leading in the polls there. It, it seems like I, I think one of his big issues is health care. The voters don't really seem to care about whatever that texting scandal is. It does appear that they don't seem to mind that he uh, was texting a woman who was not his wife. I believe he admitted that it was more than just texting, at least with one of the women who he was involved with. And the voters are telling pollsters that they're more concerned about voting for a Democrat than they are about his potential extramarital activities. And so uh, we don't see that sinking him in the polls. And look, it's been hard for Republicans to make the case that cheating on your wife is grounds for disqualification from office. The president has quite famously cheated on his wife a number of times right. uh, that is known. Um, in Arizona, just an interesting note, uh, that's uh, GOP Senator Martha McSally, and she's going up again against former astronaut Mark Kelly. And obviously his wife was the former uh, congresswoman. Uh, his wife, uh, Giffords, who was tragically shot in a shooting uh, when she was out uh, talking to constituents in her office when she was a member of uh, Congress. Um, she, uh, Gabby Giffords and her husband, Mark Kelly, have become big advocates for gun control, gun, ref gun control reform. And now Kelly, as you said, a former astronaut running for the Senate, uh, that seat looks to be someplace that Democrats could pick up. McSally was appointed to the seat after John McCain died. So this is a special election to fill that seat. So uh, this is one example where Democrats think that a state that was once quite red uh, and, and reliably Republican um, has become much more favorable for Democrats. And then just the last thing, going into the week, it's all but assured that we will see the confirmation of our next Supreme Court justice in Amy Coney Barrett. That's right. It's expected late Monday uh, that they will confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the United States Supreme Court, getting it done in record, literally record time before the election. And I think it's going to be ripe on voters' mind. I mean, uh, confirming a Supreme Court justice one week before Election Day yeah. is definitely something that's going to be playing into who controls the Senate uh, after January. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington, digital editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We have our generals lined up, one in particular that's the head of logistics, and this is a very easy distribution for him. He's ready to go as soon as we have the vaccine, and we expect to have 100 million vials. As soon as we have the vaccine, he's ready to go. Joining us now is Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Jared. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about some more about vaccines, and once we finally get some approved, we're looking maybe late November, early December, possibly 
to get some stuff started. One of the things that drug makers and hospitals alike are really concerned about is theft. And they're really going to go through a, a lot of different steps to try to keep these vaccines safe. They're looking at GPS software to track the distribution of them. They're even planning fake shipments and dummy trucks to confuse criminals, blacklight verification on the vials. There's a lot of stuff that's going to be going into keeping these things safe. So, Jared, tell us a little bit about this. Security of the vaccines, if and when they are authorized on an emergency basis uh, later this year or next year, Security is a big concern for pharmaceutical companies and, and for governments. Um, you know, one reason, an obvious reason is that there, uh, these are huge investments for the governments and for the companies. The other issue is that these are going to be in limited supply at the beginning, uh, short supply. That's partly due to manufacturing limitations and that there aren't going to be that many at the beginning, obviously. There would be maybe one or two, you know, at, at a certain point. So they're going to be a coveted commodity, basically. That's the issue that, that a lot of these um, companies and law enforcement and hospitals and uh, distributors are facing right now. So help us paint a, a picture of what's going to happen when these things are being transported. Uh, my understanding is the Department of Health and Human Services is arranging for U.S. Marshals to accompany some of these shipments. And then I was mentioning some of these other things, fake shipments and dummy trucks. Paint a picture for us. What is, going to, what is this going to be looking like? So, so what we know uh, so far is that the, the federal government, which is, is overseeing much of this distribution efforts um, and vaccine development uh, programs, is going to send U.S. marshals out with the vaccines to accompany and protect them. These vaccines from different companies that are being manufactured right now are being stored in undisclosed locations. We don't know where they are, really. And uh, they have been souped up with security systems uh, and security efforts even stronger than usual because of the vaccines uh, and, and what's inside of them. You mentioned the dummy trucks. The, these are sort of tactics that the pharmaceutical industry uses to throw off thieves from intercepting and stealing their products. Thieves can range from organized, sophisticated crime rings um, around the world to individuals who are just trying to get ahead uh, in line of the vaccines. These vaccines are expected to be prioritized for healthcare workers, particularly in the U.S. And if some bad actor wants to get ahead of that, that is a concern of, 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 some, uh, of some folks um, and trying to sort of prevent that. So you have Pfizer, for example, which is making a vaccine. They are using GPS software on specially made boxes, uh, contain shipping containers uh, for their vaccines. And, uh, you know, UPS, which is going to be shipping uh, much of these vaccines or some of these vaccines, they also have a, a GPS tracking software that will allow them to see the location of a vaccine within two meters of where it is. So this is all sort of as a way to sort of track and trace where the vaccines uh, may end up uh, or where they are along the shipping routes. Another interesting part of this, that's on the distribution side. Once they finally get to the hospitals where they're going to be administering the vaccines, you know, they're going to be beefing up their security as well. But really their concern is how to store, having the capability to properly store the vaccines, which a lot of them have to be done at extremely cold temperatures. So they're really more focused on that part of it. Some of these vaccines that are in advanced stages of development and in late testing with humans need to be cold 
uh, and stored at sub-zero temperatures, some at extremely cold temperatures. Um, that means that they need to be stored in, in special freezers that in some hospitals are being leased or purchased. And then they have to be hooked up onto networks uh, in these hospitals. And security, cybersecurity consultants told me that they are concerned about cybersecurity and uh, thieves kind of uh, making their way into these networks because such freezers and refrigerators uh, have a mixed history of, of being secure. But from a physical perspective, hospitals and other vaccination sites are planning to use sort of standard security measures where they put the vaccines and store them in, in locked pharmacies or locked locked freezers and, and stuff like that. They they are focused on, to, your, to what you mentioned earlier, uh, these uh, many hospitals are focused on just making sure that people are interested in taking the vaccines and that they even have enough uh, capabilities to store them. They are not as focused on uh, uh, as theft and preventing theft right. as much um, at the moment. Yeah, I mean, no doubt this is going to be a hot commodity. But I noted in your article you had a statistic from the Pharmace- Pharmaceutical Security Institute, uh, a trade group. Uh, they said that over the past five years, theft and counterfeiting of pharmaceutical products has risen about 70%. So this is a legitimate concern, despite, you know, what we see polls out there of people saying, oh, they don't want to take it or whatnot. This is, this is going to be something that's going to be really kept very securely. The notion of pharmaceutical products uh, being counterfeited or being stolen has been an issue for law enforcement and for the pharmaceutical industry for years. Um, And they, come up with ways where they figure out different sort of strategies to sort of push up against that and, and to fight that. But pandemics present a, a different sort of uh, scenario. And we have seen in previous pandemics where medications or vaccines are, have been stolen uh, or they've been counterfeited. They've been intercepted at, at the border, at airports. And a lot of industry officials and healthcare officials and government folks uh, right now are, are thinking about six months ago when PPE, personal protective equipment, sort of was run rampant and that there was chaos and that there was fraud and, and different bad actors and that sort of situation um, to sort of uh, make sure that there were enough masks and gloves and stuff like that, right? And so people are keeping that in mind, too, about uh, making preparations for security and to uh, uh, prevent against theft. Jared Hopkins, pharma reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thank you, guys. Disinfecting every service, sometimes multiple times a day. Frequent hand washing, uh, staggering arrival and departure times, other things like that. So, you know, this doesn't mean that no one could catch COVID-19 at a daycare center. So it's important to keep COVID-19 under control by continuing to do things like wearing masks and social distancing. Joining us now is Kate Bagley, contributor at Popular Science. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. We have some good news for parents with young children. There was a recent study of more than 57,000 child care providers across the U.S., and they found out that child care programs really aren't likely to spread COVID-19 through the community. This is when employees are taking a lot of precautions, such as wearing masks, keeping the kids socially distanced from each other, and cleaning, a ton of cleaning. So, Kate, tell us a little bit more about how the study was done and what we learned. Researchers 
surveyed more than 57,000 people who worked at daycare centers across all 50 states, also Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico. And about half of them had kept coming into work through the early months of the pandemic, and about half of them, their workplace had closed or they weren't able to come into work. And they found that the ones who were coming into work weren't more likely to catch COVID-19 than the workers who didn't. They were catching COVID-19 at about the same rate as American adults generally. And yeah, that indicates that child care centers don't worsen the spread of COVID-19 in the community. There were a couple things they noticed. They saw that Respondents who are Black, Latino, or Native American were more likely to have tested positive than the respondents who are white. And child care workers in counties where there were more COVID-19 deaths were also more likely to have caught COVID-19. But these patterns were separate from whether they were coming into work or not. And they were taking very extensive precautions, yeah, disinfecting every service, sometimes multiple times a day frequent hand washing, uh, staggering arrival and departure times, other things like that. So, you know, this doesn't mean that no one could catch COVID-19 at a daycare center. So it's important to keep COVID-19 under control by continuing to do things like wearing masks and social distancing. But it is an encouraging sign that when these extensive precautions are taken, that daycare centers won't worsen spread of COVID-19 in the community. Going back to what they were doing to keep everything clean and all that, more than 90% of those that were surveyed reported that they were frequently washing their hands and indoor surfaces at least once a day. And in some cases, I think more than half, they did it about three times every day. So that is a lot of cleaning. That's a lot of uh, steps to kind of go through. But that's kind of what we were always hearing, you know, keeping things clean is going to help out with that. One of the interesting things about this survey study was that it was just daycare centers or or people that were working in daycares with very young children. I think it was children under six. Yeah, the vast majority were under six. These results really shouldn't be extrapolated to uh, schools working with older kids, partly because the average school has so many more kids than the average daycare center. And also they're moving around more. You know, each class they are mixing, they're leaving and going to different classes. And it's just a lot harder to control sort of in the same way. So, you know, the the researchers that some of the things they were able to pull off with daycare centers may not apply for uh, schools with older kids. Right. But for parents with young children that need to go to work, that, you know, had come to rely on these daycare centers maybe before the pandemic hit, uh, it's at least good news for them that with all those proper precautions, uh, you can at least know that your kids are safe there and safe coming back home at least. Yeah, and one thing that I will say is that, again, it's not as though no one could catch COVID-19 at a daycare center. So, again, that's why it's so important to keep COVID-19 from being out of control in the community generally. Um, But the daycare centers themselves do not appear to be worsening it. So that's um, that's encouraging news. Yeah, I mean, that's great. It's encouraging, as you mentioned, still in keeping in track with what we know about the virus and children, that they are spared the worst effects. And then uh, beyond that, parents uh, that need to have this service, uh, they know they can uh, still be safe with all of it. So good news for parents with young children. Kate Bagley, contributor at Popular Science, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. It was a pleasure speaking with you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.